Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for the section of the scriptures called the prophets, the Nevi'im. We thank you for these men who faithfully delivered the message that you gave them to deliver often under difficult circumstances. And in this particular case that we're looking at tonight, this prophet um, created his own difficult circumstances. But you used him anyway. We ask that you will use us and help us to submit to your will for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, tonight we begin the section of the prophets. And I'll start with Jonah. In, in addition to your regular handout, I've given you a, a couple of other handouts, additional handouts. And just hold on to these because we'll use these as we go through the prophets. One of them uh, gives the, the prophets and the kings who are ruling at that time. So that will help you to keep oriented as we go through the prophets as to where we are in, in history. And that's why I'm starting out with Jonah and Amos and Hosea because those were the earliest of the writing prophets. This other handout is uh, prophecies about the Messiah in, in the minor prophets. So this is just in the minor prophets. It's not, it doesn't include Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And it doesn't include the prophecy that we'll be looking at tonight about the three days and three nights of Jonah. But the other minor prophets and their prophecies about the coming Messiah are in here. So you can hold on to those. Jonah, Jesus Christ, are resurrection and life. And of course, we know that there's a tie-in there with our resurrection and life because as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale or great fish, whichever it was. But first, since Jonah is only four chapters, I want to spend a few minutes just talking about the prophetic writings in general. A prophet was a person who spoke for God to the people. The prophets addressed both future issues, foretelling, and present issues, forthtelling, with present issues often being the overwhelming concern of their messages. When we think of prophets, we usually think of the, the, forth, the foretelling aspect, predicting future events, but that is actually not usually as big a, a part of their prophecies as uh, the forth-telling part, speaking for God, calling people to repent. They did announce future events, such as the Messiah's coming and the final day of judgment, but typically they declared how God's people should live in light of their covenant with God. That was the main thrust of their message. Now, there were prophets early in Israel's history. Abraham, Moses... Samuel, Nathan, Elijah and Elisha, and Huldah, who was a prophetess, a, a woman prophet. There are a few of the individuals that are called prophets by the Old Testament early in Israel's history. But with the exception of Moses, who obviously did a lot of writing, he wrote the, the Pentateuch, but the, the other prophets didn't write books that became part of the canon of scripture. There's no book of Abraham or book of Elijah. So the prophets that we're looking at now 
uh, are prophets that wrote books that became part of the canon of scripture. Those are the, the prophets that are in the prophets section. And they began to appear in the 8th century BC, in the 700s BC. Most of the themes that occur elsewhere in the Old Testament also occur in the prophets, but there are special themes that are emphasized in the prophets, in the prophetic writings. The prophets assert that God has spoken through them. Over and over we, we hear the prophet saying, thus saith the Lord. So the Lord has delivered a message to him and he's delivering it to the people. The prophets affirm that God chose Israel for covenant relationship. They are speaking to God's people because he has placed them in a special covenant relationship and they are calling them to come back often to that covenant relationship. The prophets most often report that the majority of Israel has sinned against their God and his standards for the relationship. The prophets warn that judgment will eradicate sin. Either stop sinning or God will do it for you. He'll eradicate you and your sin. The prophets promise that renewal lies beyond the day of punishment. Yes, this day of judgment is coming, but beyond that, there is renewal. So they warn of the, of the day of punishment that has already occurred in history. And beyond the coming day, that will bring history as we know it to a close. There will be renewal. One of the things I want to explain to you is pronouns in the prophets. Because sometimes pronouns are difficult in, in, the, in the prophetic writings. You're not sure who the pronoun is referring to. Because sometimes there isn't an antecedent. In other words, the actual person or entity being referred to. Sometimes there isn't an antecedent. And sometimes there's more than one possible antecedent. So it can be confusing. Some of the reasons that it is confusing is unmarked interjections, unsignaled transitions in oracles or other passages. Now, some of these won't make much sense to you right now, but I'll give you an example of each to show you what, what I'm talking about. Differences in ancient and modern conventions for pronouns. So the way that they used pronouns in the ancient times, the Hebrews, is sometimes different from the way we use pronouns. Sometimes there's obscurity in a passage beyond simply its pronouns. So the pronouns can cause some obscurity, but sometimes there's additional obscurity besides the pronouns. And then an author might be addressing the people as a whole, personified as a single you. So he might say you singular, but he's talking about He's addressing the whole group, the whole of Israel. So I'll give you some examples of these. Who is the, who is the he in Zechariah 10.11? Who is the us in Isaiah 41.22? Who is the her in Micah 7.10? Who is the they in Ezekiel 30.17? Who is the you in a singular in Isaiah 41? 8 through 10. So, let's look at, look at the first one. 
He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. Who is this he that we're talking about? Well, the reason it's confusing is because the Lord speaks in the first person, I, on either side of this verse. However, the context suggests that the action of Zechariah 10.10 belongs to the Lord. And in Zechariah 10.12, the Lord's own voice seems to refer to himself in the third person, his name. So in spite of changing between I and he or him, the reference is consistently to God. So you, you wouldn't do that yourself. You mean, if you were referring to yourself in the first person, you, I did this, I did that, and then you wouldn't refer to yourself as he, and then switch back to I again. But that happens in the prophets, where we find these switching first person, third person, back to first person. So watch out for that in the prophets. Uh, just because it's, there's an I and a he, that doesn't mean they're two different people necessarily. It may be the same person. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Well, who is this us in, in Isaiah 41? The first person plural reference continues in Isaiah 41, 23, and then reappears in Isaiah 41, 26, but never with an explicit reference. So we, we don't have an antecedent for this pronoun. Who, who, who is the us? Help comes from the wider context. The setting is the divine courtroom. Set forth your case. And this is introduced in Isaiah 41.1, right at the beginning of the chapter. Let us draw near for judgment. So us in Isaiah 41.22 remains members of the divine court who are hearing the case against the idols of Isaiah 41.7. So the us here is the the uh, divine council, the angelic beings, who are hearing the charges brought against the idols. All right, who is the her in, in Micah 7.10? Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her, who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her, now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Who is this her? The passage is about Jerusalem. The possessive pronoun my, in, uh, my enemy, in both verse 8 and verse 10, is a feminine. Jerusalem is personified as a woman. So the her is, is Jerusalem. In biblical convention, cities are referred to as feminine and nations as masculine. Unlike modern English usage, in which cities are normally neuter, it, and nations are often described as feminine. You know, the Russians talk about Mother Russia. You know, they, they give it a, a feminine gender, the nation. And this is, you notice this in Israel, the prophecies about Israel committing adultery with other nations. Well, they're, they're masculine. They're... they're alternate lovers to God because they commit fornication, they commit adultery with these other nations 
because they adopt their religions and turn away from the true God. And, and who are the they in Ezekiel 30, 17? The young men of On and of Pi Beseth shall fall by the sword, and they, they is feminine here, shall go into captivity. So who is the they, this group of feminine people or personages? Well, the RSV, because it's feminine, they translate it as, and the women shall go into captivity. That's what the RSV says. And the NASB does the same thing, and the women will go into captivity. And the ESV says, and the young women shall go into captivity. And the women shall go into captivity. But really, there's, there's no reason to take this as the women. Remember what I said about cities. The, mo the nearest antecedent is the two cities. And I think the, the NIV does a good job here. And the cities themselves will go into captivity. And also with the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible. And those cities will go into captivity. So the her here is those, the, excuse me, the they here is those cities. It is feminine, but remember, cities are usually thought of as feminine. And then lastly, we come to the you. The you here is singular. It's just one person. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will hold you with my righteous right hand. In every case, the you here is singular. It's like, like God is talking to one person. But in Isaiah 41, 8 through 10, you, masculine singular, refers to Jacob, the whole people portrayed as God's servant to accomplish his purposes for the world. So this, at this time, Jacob, Israel, has been dead for centuries, the individual person. So even though it's speaking to you as an individual, it's speaking to the whole of Israel, all of the people of Israel, God's people are viewed corporately as if a single person. It is to the people viewed corporately that God promises, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will hold you. So it's as if he's talking to one person, but he's actually talking to all of Israel. So let's get into Jonah now. The name Jonah, Jonah in Hebrew, there's no J sound in Hebrew or in Greek for that matter, the name means dove, which is ironic, considering his hawk-like personality. Jonah was anything but peaceful, gentle, or a symbol of cooperation and peace. Maybe that's the reason God chose him, to give another example in his running menagerie of servants voted least likely to be used by God, just like the Apostle Paul. He wouldn't have expected to 
God to use Jonah after Jonah tried to run away. You, you would think that God would say, well, I think I'll get somebody who shows a little more enthusiasm for the mission. But no, he rescued Jonah and still called him to complete the mission. Jesus said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as shrewd as servants and as harmless as the doves. Jonah was far from dove-like in his attitude and behavior. Similarly, the flight of Jonah. The author of the book of Jonah is unknown, but it was probably either someone familiar with the story of Jonah or Jonah himself. The only other Old Testament reference to Jonah is found in 2 Kings 14.25. Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer, a small town near Nazareth, not far from Nazareth, and I'll mention that a little bit later. The book of Jonah was written during the reign of Jeroboam II of Israel, sometime between 793 and 753 B.C. So the reason that we're not sure that if, whether or not Jonah actually wrote the book of Jonah or someone else did is because, once again, those pronouns. All throughout the book of Jonah, Jonah is referred to in the third person. He did this and he did that. So was that Jonah himself speaking of himself in the third person or was it someone else? We're not sure about that. Jonah's story is a classic example of what God can do not only through the words of a prophet, but also in the life of a prophet. God told Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh, but Jonah was disobedient and fled to Tarshish instead. In spite of his defiance, God directed his path and brought him to repentance in an unusual place, a unique place, the stomach of a fish. In a complete 180-degree turn, Jonah went and preached to the people of Nineveh, who repented, much to his surprise, of their sins and glorified God. So, as I mentioned, there are only four chapters in Jonah. The first chapter is the, the disobedient prophet running from God. The second chapter is the disciplined prophet after God throws him into the water and puts him in a fish. The disciplined prophet running to God. That changes his direction. Then the dynamic prophet running with God and proclaiming this message of impending destruction to the inhabitants of Nineveh. Yet 40 days and I will destroy Nineveh. And then in the last chapter we have the disappointed prophet who has a run-in with God. The gospel, well, of course, Jesus used Jonah's adventure in the belly of the fish as a sign of his own burial and resurrection. Whereas Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In another place, uh, Jesus talks about how Jonah was a sign to, to Nineveh. It, it, he didn't say that, that Jonah performed the sign. He said that Jonah was the sign. The fact that he had been three days and three nights in this, in this fish, that was a sign in itself. Jesus physically died and physically rose again. Thus to call the story of Jonah a myth, as some do, 
would imply that Christ's death and resurrection was a myth too. Within the context of the Bible, a literal interpretation best fits the story of Jonah. Given the historical record of Jonah's experience provided by 2 Kings, uh, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, he speaks of Jonah as if this was an actual historical figure, an actual historical events, and of course, most importantly, Jesus himself, his, his view of the story. He spoke of it as if it were a true story, not a myth or a legend. Another aspect of the gospel is that the book of Jonah also shows the great lengths to which God will go to reach the lost and offer them forgiveness. Despite Jonah's unwilling and reluctant heart, God still used him to get a message of mercy to an unrepentant people. Hundreds of years later, Jesus Christ would go to even greater lengths to offer salvation to the entire world. The history, Jonah lived during the rule of King Rehoboam, Rehoboam or excuse me, Jeroboam II. So there were two King Jeroboams in the, in the northern kingdom of Israel. The very first king was named Jeroboam. And then later on, there was another king named Jeroboam. So distinct, to distinguish these two kings, we refer to them as Jeroboam I and Jeroboam II. This is the second Jeroboam. Uh, this was a time of wealth, territorial expansion, and peace for the northern kingdom of Israel. So outwardly, you would think everything was going great. But the nation was rebelling against the Lord, treating its own people poorly, and playing with the practices of foreign religions. There was always trouble with that in the, in the northern kingdom of Israel. Because of this, God allowed the Assyrians to conquer and take Israel captive in 722 BC. So this is a little later than the time period that we're looking at. And perhaps Jonah knew something about the fact that Assyria would eventually destroy Israel. And that's why he was reluctant to go and preached to the Assyrians. It was to these very same Assyrians, to their capital city of Nineveh, that God called Jonah to preach the repentance of sin. So the, the Assyrians were a pagan nation. They were enemies of Israel, or they would become enemies of Israel. They were very harsh and cruel and ruthless. And Jonah didn't want to preach to them, but God called him to do that. So the things that we learn from the book of Jonah, God loves mercy. Consider any Ninevites that might be in your life. People you would prefer God dealt with in swift and forceful fashion. Remember God's grace and forgiveness towards you when you were still a sinner. And even now, as a Christian, how he extends grace and forgiveness to you. There's nothing harder to escape than your own comfort zone. Jonah got upset when God withered the plant that had grown up and provided shelter for him. God used the opportunity to point out just how unjustified and ungodly Jonah's griping was. God had just shown mercy to an entire city of lost But Jonah cared more about his own comfort. 
Exposure to scriptural truth does not guarantee a godly life. Jonah shows us the picture of a man who did not allow scripture to penetrate and change his heart. He lacked the personal grace to match the intellectual understanding of God's grace. He knew God and he knew what God was like, but it hadn't yet penetrated his heart. God gives second chances and second second chances and third second chances and so on. Everyone who comes to Christ must realize that they need a second chance and that God is ready and willing to grant it. Okay. One of the things I have to comment on is in the New Testament, the Pharisees, they replied, they're talking to Nicodemus here, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, the Pharisees had such burning hatred for Jesus that they seemed to have forgotten Jonah because Jonah was from gath Hefer, which was located in Galilee, not far from Nazareth. So it's not true that no prophet arises from Galilee. That's where Jonah came from. Now, when Jonah was running away from God in, in chapter 1, he was uh, going to Tarsus. Where is Tarsus? Tarshish, I should say. Tarshish. Now, scholars have suggested that Tarsus, Tarsus in Asia was Tarsus. Tarsus in Asia Minor. Tarsus in Asia Minor. They say that that's a possible site. But it is more likely, based on a reference, in an Assyrian inscription, that Tarshish is distinct from Tarsus and was located somewhere west of both Cyprus, the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean, and the land of the Ionians, that's one of the four Greek tribes, so somewhere west of that. Perhaps it should be identified with a Phoenician colony located in ancient Tartessus in southwest Spain. So here's, here's a little map to show you uh, the, the oriented here. So Jonah boarded a ship at Jaffa here on the, on the Mediterranean coast and he was head, intending to head for Tarshish which we think was over here on the southern coast of Spain. Now he didn't get clear over there. He didn't get very far at all because Remember, he spent three days in the fish, and uh, after that, the fish vomited him up on the, somewhere along the coast here. Probably a little further north than, than Joppa, but, but that's where they think Tarshish was. It was over here in what is today Spain. And there's a map of southern Spain, and there's where it is believed that Tartessus was somewhere in this area. So that's Tarshish. Now, Jonah was swallowed by a, what? Well, ever since you were a child in Sunday school, you've always heard that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Well, maybe, but we don't know that for sure. 
There, there's a couple of reasons why we think we tend to think that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. One is because whales are large, they're big, they're the biggest animal on, on earth. And the other thing is that the King James Version says in the New Testament, whereas Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so there you go, it's a whale. Well, well, we're not so sure about that. The NASB translated, uh, translates it as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. And that's a good translation. It's, it just simply means that it, a humongous creature that lived in the sea. It's not saying what it was. Um, other translations, the NIV translates it as in the belly of a huge fish. And the, the ESV also translated, translates it as the, of the, in the belly of the great fish. So one of the things that you need to understand is that we make a distinction between fish and aquatic mammals like whales or dolphins. But the ancient Hebrews didn't make that distinction. They had one word to refer to every creature that was swimming around in the water, whether it was a fish or a mammal or whatever it was. The same thing with birds. If you go, the, go through the list of Leviticus 11 of clean and unclean animals. Uh, they had one word that referred to all flying creatures, whether they were birds or flying mammals like bats. They're all the same. There's one word all the same. They don't make that distinction that we do today between the, the birds or the, or the fish and the, and the whales. So it may have been a whale or it may have been a fish. Now, here's the creature that I think is a likely candidate for the creature that swallowed Jonah. This is a whale shark. A whale shark is not a whale. It's a shark, it's a fish. It's called a whale shark because it's so big. It's the size of a whale, but it's a fish. Here's another shot of the whale shark. A whale shark can be 40 feet long. So you have a fish the size of a school bus. And I have, uh, next I have several pictures of divers swimming around a whale shark. Now, a whale shark is a very docile creature. They're not vicious at all. I mean, when you think of sharks, you think of big cleaning teeth and chomping on things. Well, that's not what a whale shark does. A whale shark's teeth are very tiny. They're like Velcro. It has like 3,000 teeth in its mouth, but it hardly ever uses its teeth. They're just, they're just very tiny, like Velcro. So they don't, they don't chomp things. They don't uh, bite things. Now, here's a, here's a whale shark, and here's some divers that have just entered the water. And now the divers are going down to check out this whale shark. And as I said, whale sharks are not vicious. They're not, they're not about to harm you. They have no interest in, in swallowing you. And here's a, here's a diver alongside a, a whale shark. So you get some perspective here of the relative size of a, of a man and a whale shark. Here's another picture of a diver and a whale shark. 
And you can see the, uh, the mouth there opening up. And so next I have a series of pictures showing you that cavernous mouth of the whale shark. So what a whale shark does to feed is it swims up near the surface of the water and it just coasts along with his mouth open. It, it has to process large volumes of water because it feeds on plankton, little teeny tiny plants and animals floating in the water. That's what it feeds on. So it has to move lots of water through its mouth in order to get enough food to feed it. So I think it can... It can uh, process something like 400,000 gallons of water in an hour, just swimming along with his mouth open, uh, filtering out the, the plankton. And so th these fish that you see in front of the whale shark, the, the whale shark is not trying to eat them. Smaller fish like to hang around near the whale shark because they know that the whale shark is so big that it will intimidate predators. So they like to, all kinds of little fish like to hang around the whale shark. They know enough not to go inside of its mouth. They just swim, swim by it. So here's a little closer up. And here you can see the, the big gaping mouth. So the whale shark wasn't trying to swallow Jonah. It was just doing what whale sharks do. It was just swimming along, just cruising along. And Noah, or excuse me, Jonah was thrown into the water. He was thrown overboard in the path of the whale shark. So the whale shark just came along and scooped him up. You know, just like, boom, what was that? <laughs> so there's a picture of the whale shark with his mouth open, cruising near the surface. And another thing that I that makes me think that this could have been the the creature that swallowed Jonah is that when a whale shark swallows something that it can't digest, it turns its stomach inside out. It disgorges the contents of its stomach. So that would explain why the fish vomited Jonah up because it's, it doesn't normally take in something as big as a human being. So it couldn't digest them and it got rid of them. I, I just wanted to point out that if a prophet was a fisherman, he was a net prophet. But Jonah, after the fish vomited him up, was definitely a gross prophet. Another interesting thing about the book of Jonah is that Jonah prayed inside the belly of the fish in chapter 2 of Jonah. And 
there are some interesting parallels between the prayer that Jonah prayed in other books of the Old Testament. There are some parallels in, in the book of Job. There are some parallels in the book of Lamentations. But most notably, there are parallels in the book of Psalms. Uh, Jonah uses parallel words to the Psalms. He uses a parallel ideas and concepts. The, the Psalms have influenced the prayers of God's people for centuries. So it's just interesting to see how the Psalms influenced Jonah's thinking. It had been about 200 years or so between the time of David and the time of Jonah. But they had these, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, as their guide in prayer. And I'll just show you a few of those. This is a listing of, of the scriptures from the book of Jonah and the, the Psalms that correspond. In Jonah 2, 3, Jonah says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. In Psalm 69, 14, deliver me, do not let me sink. May I be delivered from the deep waters. And the second part of Jonah 2, 3, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Psalm 42, 7, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Jonah 2, 4. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. In my distress, this is Psalm 18, 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord my God. I cried for help from his temple. He heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Jonah 2, 5. The waters closed over me, in over me, to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Psalm 69, 1 and 2. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. Jonah 2, 6. At the roots of the mountains, I went, went down to the, to the and, and whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Psalm 42, 7 8, deep calls to deep. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By the day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So just as Psalms thought of God as the God of my life, so did Jonah. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord my prayer, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. This is Jonah 2, 7, Psalm 5, 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. So you can see how the, the Psalms shaped Jonah's thinking about prayer. Now here, here's an interesting question. Did Jonah actually die? It has been assumed that Jonah was kept alive in the belly of the fish. 
for three days. That may not be the case. Some scholars, notably Henry Morris, make the case that Jonah may have died and been raised from the dead. This is a quotation from Henry Morris. The Lord Jesus confirmed the historicity of both Jonah and his experience in the whale by citing it as a type of his own coming death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, these words of Christ may indicate that Jonah, like Jesus, actually died and then was restored from death. If Jonah's prayer is taken literally, then it appears that he may have actually died. This would explain something that has long puzzled scholars about Jonah's prayer. Why does he offer a prayer, a thanksgiving psalm, when he's still in the fish? Particularly in, in chapter 2, verses 1, 6, and 9, he talks as if he's already saved. But the fish hasn't vomited him out yet. So how, how can he be thanking God for being saved when, when the fish hasn't even disgorged him yet? This would explain something that, that is long puzzled scholars. But this is understandable if Jonah were dead and was then brought back to life. Now, he was, he was raised from the dead like Lazarus, not like Jesus. He, he wasn't raised to eternal life like Jesus was or like we will be when we see our glorified bodies. He was raised from the dead just to a, a mortal physical life and he later died, just like Lazarus. But he may have actually died and been raised from the dead. Another issue that, that comes up about Jonah's exploits in Nineveh is the size of Nineveh. The literal Hebrew calls it a great city to God, a journey of three days. Well, what does that mean, a journey of three days? Well, there have been several explanations offered for what that means. Uh, one explanation is it refers to the city's diameter, how long it took to travel through the city. That's one explanation. Another explanation is that it's not just referring to the city of Nineveh, it's talking about greater Nineveh, the whole region, the whole district, the whole administrative district of which Nineveh was a part. And then another idea is that the three days journey refers to the distance Jonah had to travel to get there. So that's another idea. And the length of Jonah's preaching is a fourth idea, the three days, the length of Jonah's preaching tour to make sure the entire population heard the message. So that's a fourth idea, is that, that the three days refers to the amount of time Jonah took making sure that the entire city of Nineveh heard his message. It is doubtful that the three days refers to the city's diameter. In three days, a fit man could walk 60 to 70 miles, the distance from Jerusalem to the Sea of Galilee. No city in the ancient world was that large. So we don't think that's, that it's referring to the diameter of the city, the amount of time it took to walk across the city. That would be just too big of a city. Nor is it likely that the three days refer to the time it took Jonah to travel there. 
Nineveh is far inland, hundreds of miles. Jonah would have had, would have needed more time, more than three days to travel from the Mediterranean coast to Nineveh. Sometimes when you're reading the story of Jonah, you get the impression that this fish vomited him up and there was Nineveh right there. No. Once he got back on the shore, he had to travel a long ways before he got to Nineveh. It wasn't just right, located right nearby, nearby the seacoast. So Jonah would have needed more than three days. Now, some have suggested that three days journey is just an idiom that, that means a, a long journey, but there's no compelling evidence for that. So that leaves, well, here, here you can see, I wanted to show you just how, how far it is from the Mediterranean coast here over to Nineveh. It's a, it's a long way away. It's not just right on the coast. So here's a, a map of Nineveh. Nineveh is located right here, right on the Tigris River. And you, you can see this, this inset here. And it's a long ways from, from the Mediterranean coast. It's more than three days' journey. The other two possibilities are much more likely. Either that we are referring to greater Nineveh, the, the region, the administrative district of Nineveh, or that we are simply referring to the length of, of Jonah's preaching tour. The respected Old Testament archaeologist, C.F. Kyle, described Nineveh as a complex of four walled cities clustered together around the, the Tigris River. The outer walls were 100 feet high with a 60-mile circumference. And that's about the time, length of time that it would take for a man to walk around the city. So that's a possibility. Uh, some other things about this city, it had 1,500 guard towers around these, these four cities. And it had 15 gates. Each one was named after one of the gods that the Ninevites worshipped. The text does not actually say that Jonah needed three days to walk through Nineveh without stopping. So it's not actually saying that it took Jonah three days to walk across Nineveh. It only states that he, he took three days to go through it on his preaching mission. Street corner preaching requires a fairly extended stop at each place. The message is delivered. So three days is, is certainly not too long a period to complete this assignment in a city which may have contained as many as 600,000 people. We, we say that because it refers to 120,000 who, who didn't know their right hand from their left hand. And it's generally thought that that refers to infants or young children. So if there were 120,000 of those, there could have been a total population of around 600,000. Another question that comes up is, which king of, Syria, of Assyria? If the king of Assyria was Adad Nereri III, it is well known that this king confined his worship to the god Nebo. So there were all of these gods in Assyria, in Nineveh, but he confined his worship to just one god. So he was already prepared for the idea that there's only one god. So it's 
possible that he was the Assyrian king. If Jonah came somewhat later in the reign of Assurdan III, he would have found the populace psychologically prepared to expect a total catastrophe. So Jonah came along and told the Ninevites that in 40 days, God was going to destroy the city. And the Ninevites, if, if this is the king who was the Assyrian king at the time, uh, would have thought that possible. For a serious plague had fallen in the city in 765, and a total eclipse of the sun had taken place on June 15th, 763. So eclipses were always considered very ominous events in the ancient world. And another plague had followed that eclipse in 759. So God may have used historical circumstances to prepare the Ninevites for Jonah's preaching of imminent destruction. And they may have thought, well, maybe this guy is telling the truth. So that helps to explain why the entire city would have repented in sackcloth. In, in the uh, Billy Graham crusades, you know, they think that they really had a success and they get 10% of the, of the people to come forward. But in Jonah's case, it was 100%. Everybody repented. Another uh, thing that I want to talk about, finally, is Jonah and the worm. Remember this this plant grew up to provide shade for Jonah, and he was really happy about that. And then God sent this worm that chewed on the plant, and it withered and died. And Jonah was very upset because Jonah had camped out outside the city of Nineveh, hoping that maybe God would change his mind. Maybe God would come to his senses and destroy, Jonah, destroy Nineveh after all. But instead, this, this worm chewed on the plant, and, and once again, jo uh, Jonah was exposed to the hot sun. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. You know, the worm did, didn't just happen to come along. God provided this worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. Now, if you were here when I talked about the book of Psalms, you may have remembered about a worm. The word that is translated worm here is the very same word that is translated worm in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is very clearly a messianic psalm. It starts out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words which Jesus quoted on the cross. But later on in Psalm 22, there's this puzzling thing that the psalmist says, but I am a worm and not a man. How does that apply to our Savior, the Messiah? Well, the Hebrew word tola'at, translated worm, in both Psalm 22 and in Jonah, is a particular kind of worm. It's referred to the a worm that produces the red dye, a dye that's made from that worm. And, and it also refers that same word to the, the cloth that is dyed with that red dye. 
when we read about blue and purple and scarlet in the, in the tabernacle, that scarlet comes from this dye, this red dye from the worm. And that red dye cloth or yarn dyed with that red dye was also used in cleansing leprosy and in the red heifer ceremony. The, red the ashes of the red heifer were used to cleanse someone who had come into contact with the dead body. And that also involved this red dye that was used to dye wool or yarn. And there's a picture of what happens. Um, when people look at this, they don't, and this is greatly magnified, it's very small, about the size of a pea. Um, when people see this on a plant, they don't even realize that it is a worm. They just think it's part of the plant. But it's not. The crimson or scarlet worm is a symbol of Jesus. The crimson worm was not recognized as a worm. They just think it's part of the plant. Jesus was not and still is not recognized by many as the Messiah. The crimson worm stains the wood it's attached to, and it stains its young red. Jesus stained the cross red with his blood, and we are covered by and protected by his blood. The crimson worm feeds her young with their own body. The larvae actually eat her flesh. Jesus said that he who eats and drinks his flesh and blood has eternal life. In Isaiah we read, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The crimson worm and the scarlet dye derived from it are a, a picture of the person and work of Christ. That's why the Messiah is described as a worm. And so, something as seemingly insignificant as the worm in the book of Jonah is significant. And so that's a whirlwind tour through the book of Jonah. Father in heaven, we thank you for this little book of Jonah and all of the lessons that it teaches us from the amazing truth of a Messiah who would be dead for three days and three nights and then would rise from the dead. And also, we thank you for teaching us that we need to share your heart for the lost. We need to have the mercy and compassion that you do. We ask that you will continue to help us to be conformed to your image. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.